Welcome to VidFriends Podcast, Living Life and Love. I'm your host, Mark Braxton from Raleigh, North Carolina. This is a very special podcast discussion between the North Carolina Vitiligo Support Community and Dr. Victor Hong from California. In this particular podcast, the community members had an opportunity to ask questions and get them answered by one of the local dermatologists within the vitiligo community. Hopefully within this podcast, you'll get some of your questions answered about vitiligo or maybe you'll generate more questions you would like to have the doctors answer the next time you go to your dermatologist. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Living Life and Love. Since we're starting, I guess we'll start with questions. And I think the most important question at this time, can you explain to us the different types of vitiligo? Because what happens, I think, in our community and outside the community, we say vitiligo and we put it all in one category, but they're different types. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, part, very broadly speaking, uh, we break up the world into segmental vitiligo versus non-segmental vitiligo. And I think that's the clearest division that exists right now. And, and by segmental, we mean vitiligo that affects one chunk of the body. And so one of the characteristic uh, properties of segmental vitiligo is it respects the midline. And so um, you'll see a, a light spot that goes right up to the middle of the forehead and it won't go beyond it, or right up to the middle of the abdomen and it won't go beyond it, right? Um, and that's, that pattern of segmental vitiligo uh, implies that it comes from a different place than non-segmental vitiligo. Um, there is something that is uh, part of there uh, when when we are um, not even embryos yet. All of our cells come from us from someplace, right? And uh, they have to travel to the places that they're supposed to be. Um, this pattern of segmental vitiligo being uh, affecting one part of the body and not crossing the midline implies that there was something that happened during that. Uh, travel process that affected uh, a, a primordial cell in that area, right? Now that's in distinction to non-segmental vitiligo that tends to be symmetric on the body, tends to develop a little bit later in life, um, and tends to be more progressive. Um, and uh, for non-segmental vitiligo, um, there is a, a understanding now that the immune system has a big role to play in the development of non-segmental vitiligo. And, and most uh, cases of vitiligo end up in that category. Right? Um, within the non-segmental vitiligo category, there are many different patterns of, um, of vitiligo that have been observed. Uh, we don't completely understand uh, what gives a certain person, a certain pattern of vitiligo versus another person, a different pattern of vitiligo. Um, but uh, for some folks, it'll be very focal and just one spot here and that's all that I've got. Uh, for other people, it'll be more generalized and kind of uh, in encompass most of the body. Uh, there are other patterns that involve uh, areas around the lips and the tips of the fingers. Um, and so there are several different patterns uh, within, uh, within that non-segmental vitiligo uh, category, uh, but, but roughly that's, that's kind of how we think about it, right? And it's important because, um, as I mentioned earlier, 
the non-segmental vitiligo, the, the driving force behind it is the autoimmune component. And so a lot of the treatments will be uh, devoted to uh, suppressing that autoimmunity, the, uh, trying to quench the flame that is causing the, the vitiligo to show up, right? Whereas the non-segmental vitiligo tends to show up earlier in life as you might expect from something that happens uh, during development and tends to be more stable and tends to be more limited. Um, and, and so uh, the, the prognosis is different for the two of them as well. I have a question, but before I get to my questions, anybody else on the call have any questions? I see someone else just joined and thank you. That's 910 in the last two digits to be five zero. So thank you for joining us. So we know there, there are different types that falls in within segmental, non-segmental. Can many of us have multiple patterns? And I say that because, you know, when I look, do research, you know, um, we talk about it being around the mouth. I have mm -hmm. some around my mouth, but I also have many polka dotted, you know, spots on my leg. Then I have mm -hmm. the huge spots. Um, of course, I have it on my hands and, and feet and other areas of the body. So I, I, I guess my question is, you know, with many of us in our community, do we kind of dance between multiple patterns of vitiligo or is it just, oh, how does that work? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, it's a very astute question. I think um, the there there is such a thing as mixed vitiligo as well. And and there are folks who will start segmental and then progress to become non-segmental. Um, and, and so it, it is true that a lot of uh, the way that we conceptualize this, it's uh, more a model to think about it in. Uh, the, the reality for uh, individuals um, is, uh, is uh, messier than that, right? And so um, uh, definitely you can, you can straddle between different types of vitiligo or um, have a unique pattern of vitiligo all to yourself um, uh, as well. Um, and so I think that's definitely true. Anybody else have any questions real quick? Because I have another one, but I don't want to hog up the time if you guys have questions. I do have a question, Mark. Yes. This is Tanya? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay. So my question um, today um, is, now, I have the non-segmental, which, mm -hmm. you know, I have the symmetric. That's how mine um, looks. Pretty much what's on the left is on the right. Um it developed later in life. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in my probably mid 20s and it did get more progressive as I got older. So all three of those things did fit um, the description. Um, what um, I wanted to know was, um, oh, goodness, I think I lost my question. And and um, before I, I, when I said all those things to remind myself, <laughs> okay, um, about the progressiveness of it. Um, okay, so basically, ninety percent of my body is is white patch now. So I don't. Oh. I have a little bit. Well, maybe eighty five, eighty, ninety. Yeah. So I want to know. I'm so sorry. I forgot. I I cannot remember how I wanted to answer that question. Maybe it'll come back to me. 
it's going to come back to you. I, this happens to me all the time, especially when I'm put on the spot, right? And uh, I'll, I'll get nervous, and uh, I'll, so so no worries. Well, yeah. Okay, then. If I think of it, I'm, I truly, truly had a question. Okay. All now, right. one one thing that might be now you're in a very special situation, right? Like um, the. I think one of the things that is uh, worth keeping in mind uh, with regards to vitiligo is that everyone's experience is their own. Like there, you should never feel like uh, someone has, someone else should uh, tell you how you should feel about your vitiligo uh, because the, the spectrum of how much vitiligo appears on the body and how that uh, vitiligo affects uh, a person's well-being and their their interaction with the world runs a gamut from, hey, this is great. I'm glad that this isn't going to affect the rest of my health for the most part. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm just fine with this. All the way to this is quite impactful for me and it affects my ability to interact with other individuals professionally, socially, it can run that whole gamut, right? And your vitiligo is on a special part of the spectrum where it's involving more of your body than it's not. And in that situation, one of the questions that people will have is, uh, you know, uh, I've spent my whole life trying to get my pigment to come back. But at what point do you, uh, do I start thinking the other way and start thinking about like, hey, is there a way to get rid of the last little bit? Um, because I think vitiligo, it's a funny thing. Like with most uh, human disease, uh, the less of I, I have of something, the better, right? Like if, if I have a sore throat and I've got strep throat, the fewer strep bacteria in there, the better it is. If I've got more, then that's worse, right? Vitiligo is not exactly like that. Um, uh, for a lot of people, it's uh, if I have no vitiligo, that's the best. If I have all vitiligo and my pigment, is, my, my, my complexion is even, I'd rather have my pigment, but at least I'm even. And I feel, I feel happy, happier with that. It's where you're in the middle that things are the most complicated because the contrast between the vitiligo and not vitiligo becomes most apparent. And so a lot of people will ask, you know, uh, should I consider depigmenting therapy? Um, and, and such things do exist. Uh, we do have creams and medicines that are designed to target those uh, pigment cells and encourage them to go away. Um, but it, it's, uh, I think a lot of people kind of uh, approach it uh, or are presented it as a, you know, hey, here's your silver bullet. You've got a few spots left. Let's just get rid of those. And now you can get back to uh, not, not having this being so impactful for you. Um, it, it does work that way for some people. Uh, but I think uh, it, it is worth keeping in mind that number one, depigmenting therapy does exist. But there are a couple complications with it. One is that uh, from the medical perspective, you're not really fixing um, uh, your pigmentation as a problem. You're just changing the problem, right? Uh, you may have spent most of your life worried about when the next light spot was going to come. Once you have been completely depigmented, uh, the question then becomes, when is the next dark spot going to come back? You have, a, you have the opposite problem. 
uh, because those those dark spots can come back. And when they do, they're much more resistant to being uh, removed again, uh, because you've selected for the cells that are most resistant to the medicine. Um, and so I think for the right person in the right situation, um, it's, it's the right uh, therapy, but it's not a silver bullet either, and it's worth at least a discussion, right? I think the other part of this is um, our society is such that the, the, the tone of our skin impacts the way that we interact with one another. People will make assumptions about us based on the way that we appear, um, and changing the tone of your skin will shift the way that people interact with you. Um, and it's a reflection of our, our society. And, and uh, uh, that's another complication that um, has to be at least considered um, uh, uh, while you're considering that type of therapy, because it can, it can be quite impactful for how people interact with their families or their communities or whatever um, as things are kind of progressing. But that, 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 that might be something um, related to your special type of vitiligo uh, that is a special sort of consideration that you may or may not have considered before. You know, it, it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about it, and I'm glad you shared that. I, I was having a discussion with someone um, a couple of days ago just about how we as a community identify various conditions and, and, and illnesses we may have. And I was thinking about vitiligo, and, and it kind of weighs on me a little bit because when we talk to people, we say, "I have." They said, "Well, hey, what's happened? What's wrong with your hands?" You know, or face or whatever. We say, "I have vitiligo," and we point to the white patches. Mm -hmm. But in our reality, you can't see vitiligo. It's the condition that we have that targets our, you know, melanocytes. And the result of having vitiligo are the white patches, you know. Mm -hmm. And I know it's an easy way for us to just tell somebody I have vitiligo. Mm -hmm. um, and we show them our white patches. But I, I think when we are doing more education and awareness, we need to go a little bit deeper and let people know, you know, yes, you can't see vitiligo, but here are the results. You know, I can, I can be, my skin can be, can be very spotty. You know, I can lose pigmentation here and there, or I can lose all of my pigmentation. Or I can repigment as a result of the vitiligo, as you mentioned, shifting and changing. You know, um, in the medical field, how do you? What kind of terminology do you use when you address vitiligo in, in terms of you know our pigmentation? And I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, I think I'm not sure if I'm going to exactly answer your question, but it, it does kind of touch on something that is. Um, a newer issue in, at least from the, the medical side within the vitiligo community, which is namely, you know, number one, what there, a lot of people when they're first diagnosed with vitiligo, I think there is a very natural question of, I see this process occurring on my skin. What does this mean about everything else going on on the inside of me? Right? Like I, I have this, this very physical and observable manifestation of a propensity towards autoimmunity. Is this going to do something to the rest of me? I think that's a very um, a disconcerting thought if, if, uh, if you don't have the answer to that question. Right? Um, and the answer is that for the vast majority of people, 
it tends to be confined to the skin. And so that's the good news. Like for the vast majority of people, this is going to be the only manifestation of autoimmunity that you will experience. But there are conditions that um, are higher in uh, prevalence amongst the vitiligo community. Um, uh, autoimmune diabetes or childhood diabetes is much more common in, uh, in folks with vitiligo than not. Um, there are uh, other conditions like autoimmune thyroid disease that are more highly represented. Um, and then there are other things that remain very rare, but, but are much higher in vitiligo uh, compared to the general population, by which I mean, if you just pick someone off the street, the chances of them having a, condi a condition in this family is very, very low. Um, if you took someone with vitiligo off the street, their, their chances of uh, getting that might be five times higher. But five times a very little number is still a very little number. And so it still ends up being very rare. But looking at the general numbers, it gives you a little bit of insight into uh, what is causing the autoimmunity in the background, right? Um, but I think the take home message is for the vast majority of people, there's not gonna be any other manifestation in their body. Um, I, I do personally ask my patients to have their thyroid function checked once a year, just to double check, um, because the symptoms of thyroid dysfunction are very hard to pin down. And that uh, if I know that the chances of it are higher, um, I wanna be screening for it. But again, the reassurance is that the likelihood of you getting that is, is still very low. If I'm going to Vegas, I'm gonna vote for, I'm gonna bet on you're not gonna have problems every time. You can't get better odds anywhere, right? Um, so there's, there's that side of it, right? In terms of like reflecting what's happening on the skin. Um, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but it, uh, just to kind of uh, um, uh, fill that part out and give a little bit of reassurance about that. Um, but there are, on the flip side, there are other positive aspects to this that we may never have thought of before. So for example, folks with vitiligo, your chances of getting skin cancer, only 20% of that compared to your twin who doesn't have vitiligo, right? And so in some ways, hey, you got a superpower. Your immune system is surveilling your skin surface in a way that is protecting you um, that other folks don't have that superpower, you know? And so um, uh, that, that part you don't get to see, like, uh, as you said, like I, 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 it might be happening in the background, but I can't see that manifestation. Um, and all of these things are happening at the same time inside our bodies uh, and are a reflection of the same process. Awesome. Um, anyone else? Thank you for the information. Uh, it's very, very good for us to know this. Um, sure. Anyone else have any questions? I have a slew of them. Yes. Wait. I, I have one. Is this, um, um, is this Victoria? This is Jeanette. No. Jeanette. Okay. Jeanette. Hey, Jeanette. <laughs> Welcome. How are, uh, hello, everyone. Um, yes, I have a question. Um, I have Verilago. I had it since 2015. Um, and I just found out I was diagnosed with lupus. Would that, would I have, should, should I have any concerns about that? Um, so I, uh, I, 
so there is a connection between vitiligo and lupus. Uh, folks okay. with uh, vitiligo are more likely to have lupus. That's true. Um, okay. As far as we understand it, however, um, the there's not a direct connection in terms of if my vitiligo is worse, will it make my lupus worse? Or if my lupus right. is worse, will it make my vitiligo worse? I don't think yes. that's true. Um, I okay. think there there is a um, uh, underlying uh, propensity towards autoimmunity that has manifested itself as lupus and as vitiligo, um, but it's okay. turned on these two separate processes. Um, and so I don't think that there's going to be a direct connection between the two of them. Uh, so okay. it, does, it doesn't mean that your uh, lupus is going to be worse than if you didn't have vitiligo. And it doesn't mean that your vitiligo is going to be worse than if you didn't have lupus. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Mm -hmm. So when, when the um, pigment, when you read pigment, um, spots come in a little darker. Mm -hmm. Do we know why that happens? You know, um, the short answer is no. Um, but there, there is this observation that uh, depending on the treatment, that might be the case. Uh, so for example, there are different types of phototherapy and we used to use something called PUVA phototherapy or UVA phototherapy very often. Um, and it had a very high success rate in terms of repigmenting the skin, but it was uh, associated with this darker repigmentation. So the color match was uh, off uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, despite the fact that uh, people were getting repigmentation. Um, there's been the observation that narrow band UVB phototherapy, which is uh, phototherapy in a different part of the wavelength, uh, the, the light spectrum, um, you get a better color match. And so in some ways, um, the type of therapy that you pursue may influence uh, the chances of whether it's a good color match versus not. Um, for folks who are getting surgical treatments, there's been the observation that often around the edge, there'll be a hyperpigmented rib, and then you'll get the, um, the pigmentation across the rest of the lesion being a better color match. We don't understand that either. Um, and then there's uh, other situations where it makes more sense. So for example, with um, uh, extract laser therapy, around the edges, things will be darker. But I think that makes a little bit more sense because oftentimes when you're treating the area, there'll be a little overlap into the normal skin and the normal skin will tan as it uh, would with any sort of uh, UV exposure. Um, but the, the vitiligo skin will repigment with a, a, a better color match with their surrounding skin. Um, and so sometimes that will happen too. Um, but the short answer to your question is, no, I don't really know why. It's, it's an it's a excellent question. Um, but almost undoubtedly, I think it's a reflection of interactions that are happening between different skin po cell populations in the skin. Um, so I think the best example of this that I can kind of share is, or just as a little bit of insight into like uh, uh, the fact that there are multiple players here. In the setting of uh, skin transplant uh, for the treatment of vitiligo, 
I usually take my donor skin from uh, over in the hip or buttocks area or behind the ear um, because those are areas where um, if uh, there's a scar that develops from the don donate donation process, it's relatively hidden, right? And so most people don't mind having, a, or if vitiligo shows up in that spot, it's in a more hidden area. Um, but the pigment in that area is usually different than the pigment of wherever I'm putting it, whether it's on the shin or on the torso or on the face. Um, but somehow the body knows, like by the time I get the melanocytes onto the skin, it'll figure itself out and then it will pigment itself appropriately, not based on where I took it from, but based on where I put it. And so there's got to be some sort of crosstalk between the dermal cells underneath that are informing these melanocytes up in the upper part of the skin to say, you should be pigmented this amount in order to live in this part of the body. Um, all of that communication and crosstalk, we haven't figured it all out yet. Uh, that's an that's area of active uh, research. Um, but I think it is a very um, astute observation on your part that um, repigmentation is repigmentation, and that's a wonderful goal. Uh, but color match is like an, an evenness of tone is like ultimately the, the, the end result that we're looking for, right, as a patient. And so um, that's something we're just starting to understand a little bit better. Thank you for that information. We're going to go to Jonathan, and then I have a follow-up question for that. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Yeah, Dr. Hong, thank you for all the information you provided so far. I do have one question. Um, with the use of the extract therapy, are there any um, long-term negative effects that we should expect if we were to continue to use the extract for a extended period? Is it, that's another good question. Um, the, the answer is maybe, right? So sorry to be kind of cheeky. I don't mean to be, uh, but it's, it's the most honest answer I can give you. So on the one hand, uh, when we do the studies uh, uh, of skin exposed to narrowband UV light, which is where extract lives, right? It's uh, 308 nanometers. Narrowband UVB is considered 311 to 314. And we say, uh, that's close enough. This is all lives in the same space, right? Um, there have been folks uh, uh, who have done very careful experiments with patients who have uh, really contributed a lot to the field where we treat people with UV light and then the patients uh, agree to donate their skin through biopsies and they look very carefully to say, are there changes in the skin that we see from the light? If, if there are, are these changes associated with skin cancers? Are these changes associated with other things, right? And when you look very carefully at the skin on a molecular level, we can see changes in the DNA that are associated with UV light exposure. Um, uh, meaning we can see the type of uh, genetic damage that we would expect from sunburns and such. Uh, uh, th that's measurable. However, when you look at the big studies have, that have been done looking uh, practically at folks uh, who have been getting UV therapy, do they have more skin cancers than folks who don't? Um, the answer seems to be no. Uh, and those two, those two observations seem contradictory to one another, right? 
at least with the narrow band UVB light and the eczema laser light, we don't seem to see an increased risk of skin cancer. Um, and I think the the way that you can, uh, that I think about it is there's one of uh, several different possibilities. One is maybe there's an increased risk of skin cancer, but it's so small that it doesn't matter, right? Like that the benefit that I'm getting from the light for the repigmentation or the chance of repigmentation, it's worth it because it's so small, I can't even see it in my studies. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is, well, uh, we've been following folks for, it's been maybe 30, 40 years now uh, since these light sources have been developed. Um, and maybe it's just not long enough. It takes a lifetime for most people to develop uh, skin cancers in a meaningful way. Maybe we just haven't waited long enough and they're going to get skin cancers. We just haven't seen it yet. Uh, that's possible too, but with every passing year, I feel more and more comfortable that that's not the case. Um, so I think at the end of the day, it seems like we're the light source and the a part of the spectrum that's chosen for therapy um, seems relatively safe from the skin cancer perspective, right? Now, of course, that's not the only thing that uh, uh, light does. The other concern that I have is with regards to uh, premature aging of the skin. Uh, all of these commercials on TV about like, you know, how to stay young and youthful. Um, you know, I think we all have the sense of, hey, if I put on my sunscreen and I stay out of the sun and I don't get too much sun exposure, it'll prevent my wrinkles and saggy skin like a few decades from now, right? Um, so now I'm going underneath this light on purpose and I'm doing it three times a week what does that do for my aging process, right? Um, no, I, I am unaware of any systematic studies that have really looked at this. Uh, but from the physics perspective, um, the, I, I am reassured in the sense that the narrowband UV light penetrates maybe a millimeter into the skin, right? It's more on the superficial part of the skin. With regards to vitiligo, that's just fine because that's where all the mel melanocytes live. Those are the ones that I want to stimulate. Um, but all the parts that give me wrinkles, that's all the collagen deeper down in the dermis. Um, and so relatively speaking, the light is targeted in the area that it's supposed to, to treat vitiligo and relatively protected from the parts that would make me wrinkly and, and age faster. And so at least from the physics perspective, I feel reassured about that too. Uh, but the real answer to uh, in, on both regards is we don't really know. We have a lot of reasons to be reassured and um, a lot of practical experience to say that my patients seem to do really, really well. Um, but uh, we don't have the same type of data for in other parts of medicine. So for example, like. Uh, if I had a heart attack, they can tell me not only should I take aspirin to prevent my next heart attack, they can tell me you shouldn't take 325, you should take 81 milligrams. How'd you get to 81 milligrams? Well, they, they just have enough data to say 81 is better than 80, right? Um, we don't have that level of data for, uh, for vitiligo yet. Um, yeah, yeah thank you. That's a fair answer. Yep. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah sure. I was trying to take my mic off, uh, off a of mute. Um, yeah, that, I, I like the information that you're providing us with. Uh, I think it's very important. Um, 
we do have Super Seahawk has a a question, so I'm going to turn it over to Super Seahawk, then I'll follow up with my question. What do you got? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, uh, my question is, is there, like, parts of the body that are affected more? Like, um, I guess, by vitiligo, if you if you have it. And then um, my second part of the question is, which parts would be hard, like, to treat? Like, are, like, um, if you had, like, in your head, would it be hard to treat it than that, like, if you had it on your foot? That's what, that's how, that's what I have. Yeah, that's another excellent question. Um, so yes, there, there, there are. Um, uh, we kind of spoke about earlier how there's different patterns of vitiligo and, and vitiligo will affect different parts of the body in more people, right? Um, and and uh, I can talk to that in a, uh, in a little bit. Um, but to answer the second question, there are parts of the body that respond better to treatment, right? And uh, as far as that goes, thankfully, if there has to be one part that responds the best to treatment, um, I'm thankful that it's the face. Because that's the part of my body that is presented to the world. Um, that's the part of my body that everybody sees and like, you know, in a very literal way is the way that people identify me, right? Um, the face responds preferentially to every other part of the body. Um, and the way that I would kind of uh, give you a feeling for that is when I talk to my patients um, during our, our visits, I'm pretty comfortable quoting an 80-85% chance of getting pigment on the face to come back. Uh, it's not 100%, but it's pretty good. Then there are other parts of the body. So, for example, um, right around the nail apparatus and the tips of the fingers, uh, those areas are very difficult. Uh, that's 10% or less. And so th there, there is quite a bit of difference between the most resistant parts of the body and the most responsive parts of the body, right? Now, in terms of parts of the body that are more typically um, affected, uh, there's a whole bunch of different patterns as we've alluded to. And there are some patterns that um, affect certain groups of people where it just hasn't been described yet. You know, I'm sure that uh, there are patterns that exist in certain families or certain communities that we just not have not looked carefully enough or uh, uh, not enough people have crossed the eyes of a certain one person yet for that pattern to be recognized. But the most common patterns for non-segmental vitiligo in the general population, um, areas around the eyes, around the mouth, the wrist, this part of the wrist often is affected. Tips of the fingers, um, this sort of crease of the groin, underarm area, um, uh, those are all very common. I think it's uh, it would be a disservice not to highlight that genital area often is affected, uh, breast area often is affected, and it's worth just speaking frankly about it because these areas are so key to our identity as human beings um, that it, we should recognize it, right? And like, it turns out, like, if you don't ask people about it, half of people will go into the, uh, the visits thinking to themselves, hey, this vitiligo on my genitals is what I'm really most worried about. But half of the people who go in with that thought in their head at the beginning won't say anything about it unless you ask them, right? Understandably so, uh, because it's a, it's a sensitive thing, right? Um, but 
but it is something that is worth if it if, if that is I, I ask all my patients to break down the areas that affect their bodies into three tiers. I think of it as tier one areas where it's like, hey doc, this is the reason I'm seeing you. I have to treat these areas. Um, that's why I'm here. Tier two areas where it's like, well, I'm treating this area. I've got the medicine, I got the light. I might as well treat these areas anyway, since I'm already doing it. And then tier three areas where it's like, I don't care. Like you can be there on the top of my foot for the rest of my life that that one's okay. I'm not gonna waste any effort or energy on trying to treat that one. Um, the, the, the advice is to be, you know, have a sense of what those tiers are in your, in your head and then to let your physician know, hey, you know, thank you for treating my face. Thank you for treating my hands, but it's really the ones on my genitals that I'm worried about right now, you know? And so, so that the attention could be uh, paid to the right areas, assuming that's the tier one area. For some people, it's a tier three areas. Everybody it's different, um, but to have that thought process in your mind is helpful. Uh, I'm gonna do a follow-up question, then I'll, um, then I'm gonna go to Katrina. Mm -hmm. So um, that was something I mentioned on one of my podcasts about um, that we do have, you know, deep pigmentation in the genital areas. Mm -hmm. And in going back to treatment, so we know most treatment that's on the market is designed to treat the face. However, when some of us go to a dermatologist or go to our physicians, they and we don't have it on our face, they're still going to prescribe us a cream most times that's not designed to cure the other areas of, or to treat the other areas of the body. So to me, as, as being uh, someone who lives at Vitiligo, that it's almost offensive to a certain extent because a physician knows or a dermatologist knows it's not going to work for that part of your body but I still want you to take a chance, you know, try it anyway. But based on research, it's not going to work for, like you said, on the, the hands or the tip of the fingers or even the feet. So what are your thoughts about that? And then we'll get to Katrina's question. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good question. Uh, I think part of the struggle is that to date, uh, the therapies that we have available are relatively limited. Um, the, on the other hand, the expectation is that, um, so for example, um, tacrolimus or protopic, right? Um, the effect of that tacrolimus or protopic, I would expect it to work on areas that are going to respond to uh, that uh, immunosuppressive therapy um, whether it's on the genital area or the face or on the torso, right? Um, but I, at the same time, I think it is worth uh, knowing and sharing with our patients that there are areas that inherent in their nature, and it doesn't matter whether it's a cream or whether it's a pill or whether it's a surgical treatments or transplant, the areas certain areas are just very resistant to treatment and for reasons we don't completely understand. Um, but like this area around the fingertips, this area on the wrists, those areas are inherently just difficult to treat. And I was surprised to realize that uh, even with surgical therapy, that the same patterns exist, but they do. Um, and, and my thought process on it was, hey, the reason why these areas are hard to treat in the first place is because you have, for whatever reason, intense autoimmunity in those areas. 
once that autoimmunity has burned itself out, my expectation is, hey, I have an empty city. If I bring in citizens, they should just populate the city. Um, but it turned that's not that my naive thinking on this was not true. Um, you you may have been stable for a long, long time, and for all intents and purposes, we can't see any active vitiligo going on. But even in those cases, trying to bring in new cells into those areas, they're less likely to take in those difficult to treat areas compared to the the easier to treat areas. And we don't really understand why. Is there residual autoimmunity there that we can't see? Is there something different about um, the those areas in terms of supporting the health of the melanocytes? Or is it just that these areas are in frictional areas that are more prone to being traumatized and, and having wounding that causes vitiligo? We don't really know. I think it's probably a little bit of everything. Um, but uh, it's true uh, that um, it's, I, I don't think it's so much that um, physicians want to like withhold treatment that is better for one area versus another. It's more the case that we just have a limited set of things that we have available to us. And so it, we do tend to kind of treat everything with um, similar, at least the same classes of medicines and within those classes, I tend to push for the strongest stuff that I, is safe for anywhere in order to maximize the chances of having repigmentation. Um, and, uh, and I am not shy about using phototherapy anywhere in the body. Um, uh, some of my colleagues are, uh, uh, but I, I, I think uh, some of this concern is uh, overblown, right? Um, the, and, and so I think that's part of what, what you're receiving as a patient um, and the advice that you're receiving from a patient is not so much um, because of an unwillingness to, 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 to treat or to try. It's more because we have just limited options. That's, it's getting better. We're getting more things as we understand things uh, more. Um, but I... I can understand that frustration. Absolutely. Thank you. Let's go to Katrina and then Jonathan. Um, is there a correlation between um, hair follicles and repigmentation? There is, yes. Um, and so uh, there, the earliest uh, described stem cell compartment for melanocyte um, is in a a region of the skin right next to the hair follicles called the bulge region of the hair follicle. And that's where all the, um, the new melanocytes come out from. So like if you scraped your arm and you needed to heal that area, all of the new cells would come out of that area to fill in the hole from the scrape and put melanocytes back in that area. Um, and that, that's, uh, is uh, seems to be the most robust source of these stem cells, uh, these melanocyte precursor stem cells. If you have enough damage that the, that population is damaged, then the chances of getting repigmentation is much lower. And the way that we kind of, the visible reflection of that is if the hair, hair shafts coming out of that piece of skin if the hair itself is white, 
it may, it, it's a sign that there may have been enough damage that that stem cell compartment has been damaged so much that even the hair cannot get pigmented. And so that piece of skin becomes much harder to repigment. Um, so there's definitely a connection there. There's been speculation and some early studies suggesting that there are other sources of melanocyte precursor cells. Um, but they've been based either on animal studies or the, which is a little bit unreliable because animals are just not human beings, you know, or, or the animals that they, we are animals, of course, but the animals that they did the studies in, they're, they're just different than human beings. Um, and uh, the other source of these studies have been in um, uh, very early, like, uh, uh, natal cells. Uh, namely, like, when, when kids get um, uh, circumcision, they'll take that skin and do evaluation on it. Um, and so uh, uh, we can see things that look like melanocyte precursors in that skin, too, that is not associated with um, uh, hair follicles. But it's sort of a weird situation. It's like a foreskin, number one, from a newborn baby, number two. Um, and like, how does this reflect on my skin on my face as an adult um, who might be a woman? Like, I, the, the connection there is like, we still have to figure that out, right? Um, so the, I, that, that's, that's the connection that, uh, with the hair follicles themselves. Thank you for that. Let's go to Jonathan. If he's not there, we'll come back to him. Um, I have a question real quick about treatments. Um, I know we have, we've had several treatments um, on the market and some new things coming up soon mm -hmm. that um, we'll have more details about in July. However, is there anything um, natural that we can use that can, it may not um uh, cure the vitiligo or treat the vitiligo, but to slow it down? Any natural products that we can use? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I think uh, it's it, it go, it, we start venturing into an area where it's hard to tell, um, are people just trying to sell me stuff? Or is there stuff that's really working? And, and, it's, and sometimes it's like out of um, good intentions where it's like, oh, I think this is how it works. I've done a lot of research and like in my petri dish, this is the way the cells work, but in, in actual human beings, does it work or not, right? Um, and so it is a little bit of a touchy area. Um, I would say there, there are two uh, therapies or two health supplements that have some data for them. Uh, one of them is something called polypodium leucotomus which is a long Latin name for, um, it, it's, a de it's derived from this red fern, and it's a very potent antioxidant. And the idea is that uh, we recognize that the melanocytes um, in uh, uh, vitiligo skin are more delicate and more prone to being damaged by oxidative damage. Um, and so, if we have antioxidants in the area, are we better able to protect those cells, right? Um, the trade name, I don't know if I should discuss trade names. I'm not sure, but I'm just going to say it because I already brought it up. Um, Keviocare is the trade name for the company that has spent the most money running studies. I think that's the clearest way to say it. 
Um, and they, they're the ones that have some data behind it. It doesn't necessarily mean that theirs is the best, but it is the one that has data behind it, right? And so I don't know, there are other manufacturers of polypodium lupitomus as well, um, but they haven't had the resources to do those studies. And so it's uh, a, a little bit harder to say. Um, as you can tell, like I don't have any particular um, allegiance to one company versus the other. And I know that when I've gone to buy my HelioCare just to see what it is, it's kind of expensive. It's like 30 bucks for 30 tablets. And if I'm going to take the studies were done taking it three times a day, so I'll need three, it's 90 bucks a month. It's, it ends up being a lot if you're going to go that direction, right? Um, so, you know, that, that there's, there's polypodium. Um, and then ginkgo biloba is the other uh, health supplement that there's some data for. Now, both of these um, uh, health supplements have been studied uh, in small trials, uh, uh, but at least they are true trials and they're randomized controlled trials, um, but they're, they're relatively small, uh, 50 uh, to 60 patients each. Um, but especially for facial vitiligo, which is kind of true for any therapy for vitiligo, um, facial vitiligo is more responsive to therapy. Um, in, and in the setting of phototherapy, um, these two health supplements seem to uh, make people repigment better and more often. And so those are the two that I point my patients towards. There is another body of data looking at other antioxidants um, and nutritional support. And in particular, my Italian colleagues have identified a little cocktail of, um, I think it's uh, vitamin C and vitamin E and uh, leucine and alpha lipoic acid um, that have had some mixed data for them. And I think the way that I understand it is that, uh, and I don't know if this is actually the truth, but this is the only way that I can put together the data from like conflicting data from different groups, all of which are reputable, right? Um, I think it depends on when you take it. If you're early on in your vitiligo course and, um, oops, excuse me, uh, I just got a low power thing. I think I'm gonna be fine though. Um, if you're early on in your course and most of your, melanocytes are still there, but it's just starting out, and I just need to protect the guys who are there, then I think having this extra nutritional support is going to be helpful. Just reinforcements for the guys who are there to make sure they don't get damaged unnecessarily. But if you're later in your process, in your journey with vitiligo, and the damage has already been done, in some ways, it's like, you know, I've the, my village has already been pillaged. Like having more defenders there is not going to fix anything. I need to go and fix stuff. I'm not defending things anymore. So I think I think that's the, the difference between the trials that were successful with that sort of approach versus the trials that weren't. They were choosing different populations of patients in different situations, right? I don't know if that's actually true. Um, it's just my my guess as to why uh, different groups are having different um, results. And then I think the last thing that I would consider is uh, vitamin D supplementation. Now the data on this is much more mushy, um, but 
we know that vitamin D is important for immune function. We also know that partly because of all of us telling you to protect yourself from sunburns, that people with vitiligo oftentimes will have low vitamin D. Um, and so there are colleagues of mine who routinely uh, recommend their patients to supplement with vitamin D as well. Um, but out of the universe of all of different things that people are taking, I think those are the ones that I, I personally feel most comfortable recommending. The polypodium leucotomus, the ginkgo biloba, plus or minus this cocktail of, um, of antioxidants um, and uh, plus or minus vitamin D. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for the information. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to Danielle, back to Jonathan. And just to honor everybody's time, I have one last question after those two, and then we'll try to wrap things up. Okay. So let's go to Danielle. Well, Mark already uh, took my question, but... <laughs> <laughs> Troublemaker. Um, <laughs> it's okay. But recently, um, I went to the doctor, and I know a lot of people that have vitiligo end up having something else. Um, and they were trying to say that I had lupus, Um but each time that I go, like, I want to say about five months. No, this was about five, four years ago, because I have it, like, for about six years. Um, it came up in my blood work. They said I was positive, and then they called me back and said no. Um, and then this time, um, they said it again, and I'm waiting for the results for that. Um, he said uh, it could be where it just keeps coming up in my bloodstream because of, um, you know, vitiligo already. Um mm -hmm. But he told me to go ahead and start taking um, turmeric. I already been taking vitamin D, but he said take turmeric. Um, so that's what I was wondering. What other natural, you know, thing um, that I could be taking? I'm not sure why he recommended turmeric, and if it's good, and if you've heard that other people have used it and it helped. Um, yeah. But I'm just trying to prevent, I guess, any other thing from happening um, besides vitiligo, because for me, that's enough. Yeah. Um, so, so I think the, the way that I would put it is that uh, amongst the traditional therapies, right, there's a lot of traditional therapies. From my own culture, there's a bunch of stuff. And then from other cultures, there's a bunch of different stuff. And so it's really hard to tell what's real and what's not, right? On the other hand, you know, most of these traditions go back thousands of years. It's really hard to just discount them out of hand also, right? Like there's lots of stuff that Western medicine just doesn't understand yet, or we haven't, we haven't looked carefully enough to study. Uh, but turmeric is one that um, has a little bit more uh, data behind it. Um, it's broadly anti-inflammatory, but you have to take a lot of it. Um, and to absorb the, uh, the um, relevant compounds, um, the, the suggestion is to take it with piperine or also uh, like the, the black pepper extract, right? The, um, uh, it helps the absorption of that turmeric component. Um, would I ever treat someone with an autoimmune condition with turmeric alone? Probably not. Uh, I would want to be treating you with something uh, more potent. Um, but as a supportive thing, do I think it's a bad thing? I don't think I don't think it's a bad thing, especially if you like turmeric. Um, it, but again, like you have to take more than you would ever take just eating it, right? Like it, usually it would have to come in capsules and whatnot. Um, now, with regards to your lupus diagnosis, 
this is a super frustrating situation uh, for everyone. Um, in whenever it comes to anything that's auto-inflammatory or uh, autoimmune, very few of these things is ever diagnosable by a test. Uh, even if uh, your test comes back positive, oftentimes that's just an indicator of a propensity towards autoimmunity. It's not necessarily a diagnosis in and of itself. Uh, so for example, in the setting of lupus, one of the things that is often associated with this is a positive ANA, anti-nuclear antibodies. But we use this anti-nuclear antibody test as a general test for propensity towards autoimmunity all the time. And uh, usually we do it in a setting of someone who we have suspicions of you might have some autoimmunity going on. But if you just tested ANA in in everyone, there's going to be a chunk of people who have positive antibodies floating around that don't mean anything, uh, uh, particularly in women. Um, and there's reasons for that. I think uh, the evolutionary reason is uh, women uh, biologically need to have immune systems that are tolerant of uh, foreign material in their body, or otherwise you could never, um, never raise a child, right? And so the uh, immune system for women is different from the immune system of men, uh, immune systems of men, and uh, have a greater propensity towards autoimmunity, number one, but also a greater propensity for random positive ANAs that don't mean anything. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I would want to know is like, okay, this is positive, but how positive is it? Is it super positive or only a little bit positive? And what are the other symptoms that you're looking at that are putting me in this lupus category? Um, uh, is it just based on that lab test alone or do I have the sun sensitivity, the um, arthritis, uh, the um, pericarditis, the, uh, the, the lung findings, the, uh, the kidney findings that are really telling you, okay, this is not just the lab test, this is a real syndrome that we need to be treating, right? And it sounds like they're in that process of gathering information for you. And oftentimes this is the case where like something really early on tips something off, um, but we don't have enough symptoms to really make a real diagnosis of anything in particular. Um, and it's, I have more than one patient that I share with our rheumatology colleagues where we're just monitoring and, and gathering information and uh, waiting for something to declare itself with the hopes that it never does, you know. Um, and so that for any autoimmune condition, that tends to be more the rule than the exception. So you're, you're still, in some ways, it's a high class problem. It's like, I don't have enough symptoms for you to make a real diagnosis. I hope I never do, you know. On the other hand, it's super frustrating because I just want an answer, you know, yes or no, uh, but uh, we're kind of stuck in this limbo area. Um, so I think the reassurance I can give you is that uh, your situation is not unique. On the other hand, it's still very frustrating. But I'm glad that they're paying attention and they're checking periodically and they're looking. That's exactly the right thing to be doing. Absolutely. Thank you for that question, Danielle. We appreciate it. Sorry that I took your original question. Um, let's go to Jonathan, if you can, hopefully your audio is working. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, great. So this is Cher, um, um, Super Seahawks mom. <laughs> oh, but, great. Uh, 
Hey, how you doing? But thank you for this. I just had a, um, it was two quick points. The first one was when you were talking about which um, body part was more important to treat and all that. So Jonathan was five when we, um, uh, when, when we noticed what was going on with him. Mm-hmm. And um, the doctors kind of pushed me to certain areas. And on his backside, that's where it was moving the fastest. But they didn't mm-hmm. want to treat that. And so um, for me, I was like, well, I want you to try. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, and, and it's working. It has worked. But he has been going to treatment since he was five, twice a week. We take mm-hmm. the summers off. Mm-hmm. So um, at this point, uh, he's 15. Probably have three more years with him before he moves on. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering, like, from a doctor's point of view, is is that okay? Like, I don't know any other parents that are that are going through what I'm, what we're, what we've been dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but for Jonathan, it's normal. And for us, it was it was like, okay, if it's working, we'll continue treatment. If it's not, then you know, it's up to you. For, mm-hmm. to him, you know, at this point, he's old enough to do that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so. Well, I, I think that um, therapy over the long term is absolutely okay, whether it's phototherapy or with topical medicines, right? He's like, getting uh, phototherapy now. Fair enough, fair enough. We're so down I with think, the topical stuff. Yeah, I and I would, I, I, I like topical medicine regardless of everything else that might be going on because it tends to be relatively well supported by insurance companies. It tends to be something that you can do in the privacy of your own home without anybody else needing to know about it. Um, And it tends to make the phototherapy work better, even if you're going to be doing the phototherapy as well. So like, I think um, it always has some role. Um, The the folks who uh, truly like uh, stop it um, tend to be folks for whom, hey, based on the location or my life or my schedule, it's just more of a bother to put it on than having the vitiligo. Um, mm-hmm. And that's sometimes the case. We never want the treatment to be worse than what we're trying to treat. In that case, mm-hmm. then yeah, we'll put it to the side. We'll just do the phototherapy. Right? Um, but I think it's a-okay to continue with uh, therapy over the long-term as long as we're getting some we're making some progress. It tends to be slow and steady. It's very uh-huh. rarely is the progress like uh, very robust and fast, right? Uh, haven't but, seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So slow and steady is the rule. Um, and yeah. as long as you're moving in the right direction, that's the right way to go. Now, it, your your situation does raise another question, which is mm-hmm. with half of people with vitiligo, it shows up before the age of 20, right? Uh-huh. And so this situation where it's like, hey, there's the parental concern and then there's the child's concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and early on, um, I, I would imagine that when you were five, you probably didn't care at all. Um, mm-hmm. Now that you're a little bit older, you might care, um, you might even care more than your parents do, right? So like things kind of shift and they change. Um, and that's that's a struggle that I always have. Like uh, it, uh, how aggressive do we wanna be when it doesn't bother the child themselves, but knowing that, you know, they're a child, like they're gonna be, their, their life situation and their their focus is gonna change over time. And like, this is this may bother them more in the future. Um, it, it is a tricky thing. Um, now, uh, I think there is a resource um, through VidFriends. I forgot the, Mark, you might have to help me with this. Um, 
uh, I forgot the name of the person who's uh, leading the um, the sort of child interface. Um, oh, uh, we have the teens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're already connected. Perfect. Mm -hmm. um, because I think uh, some of these questions, it's like, boy, it would be so nice just to have another parent to ask, right? Like in the same way, it's like, do I sleep train my child or do I <laughs> do or do I not, right? Do I let them cry it out or do I hug them when they're crying in the middle of the night? Who really knows? Nobody knows. But it's still good to have a support of other parents to say like, hey, what did you do? Did this work for you? Did it not? In the same way, like sort of navigating these issues with vitiligo, it's so tricky. I don't think anybody really, there's no true answer. It's what's right for you. But to get the perspective of other folks uh, who've gone through it is so valuable. You know, uh, the, the, the parent side, I think the, the stress and impact on the parents and caregivers um, cannot be underestimated. Uh, and I think it's uh, something that is rarely addressed. Um, so having that community is so important, even if it's just to get a little bit of advice from someone else who's tra traveled the road before you. Um, this is what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to honor everyone's time because uh, I still have not eaten dinner yet. <laughs> yes. It's been a long day. Um, but what I want to do, uh, Victor, I would love for you to come back. Um, maybe um, sometime in August. Give us time to get the World Vitiligo Day, maybe get through some of the summer. And come back to have another discussion with us. Um, I have more questions. I wrote down a whole bunch of questions. But I figured maybe we could do a part two and... Um, I'm just thinking after World Vitiligo Day, I'm sure I'm going to have more questions because there'll be a new treatment on the market by that time. Well, by the end of July, just put it that way. There'll be a new treatment on the market. And I'm sure we're going to have more questions um, about the treatment or anything else that may be happening within the community. And I'll have some more information to share as I'm out, out and about, uh, such as like these uh the summit I just attended about um, dermatology and clinical trials and uh, made some connections in which I will share with the community once I've had an opportunity to um, meet with some of the people I've talked to during um, the summit. Mm -hmm. And um, and that will be uh, clinical trial based. And, and just we'll talk about like the importance of clinical trials and how to get involved because that was one of the big talking points for that summit. How do we get more people involved? And I've spoken be on behalf of Vitiligo, you know, mm -hmm. but we'll get into all that um, in the second half. But I do appreciate appreciate you coming on. I appreciate uh, the Winstead family for being here and our other members that decided to come in. Daniel, Danielle, um, Jeanette, um, and I wrote the other person down. Sorry, I have a mind blank. Tanya. Tanya. Yeah. And could, yeah, and Tanya, hey. Katrina, and, and myself. Sorry, I'm tired, y'all. Like I said, I've been on the road all day. <laughs> uh, but no, I thank everybody for being here. I really do. Um, I think we got a lot of information. Absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks, cool. thanks uh, everyone, for the wonderful questions. Happy to uh, field whatever questions that you have. And if I don't know the answer to your questions, I'm happy to do some research and try to find answers to those questions. Absolutely. We appreciate it. We really do. Um, next yeah. time we're going to have more people here because I'm sure after we share our information here, people are going to go, oh, I wish I was there. So yes, we'll give people an opportunity to jump in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for putting this together, Mark. And it's so nice to meet everyone else.
Thank you, Dr. Victor. Thank nice you. to meet you too. And, and, and to thank you. Thank and you. to the Winston so family, I'll send the link to you. Thank you for tuning into Living Life and Love. I'm your host, Mark Braxton from Raleigh, North Carolina. This episode was sponsored by my Vitiligo team. And I hope that you found something or some information that you heard on this podcast that you can use in your personal life. Y'all take care. Remember to love somebody, but most of all, love yourself.